larger one of the two females came after it and probably about 30 yards or so away from me mouth wide open big pink mouth and it, it, it was obviously male it had an erection and it was urinating and that is all i remember why do you think it was a she um she had the obvious female attributes of the chest of the mammary glands uh, about a c cup you know she said you can't see her her lower area because it's very hairy but you know i mean she had she has she was very tall and muscular but she had a shape and you know she had a hairy little butt <laughs> i guess i could say this particular animal bigfoot is was eight years old she was very very mature and <laughs> while i'm sitting there you know i'm I'm looking, you know, I'm staring just like crazy. And, you know, I probably might have stared at her breast way too much. And I know everybody's going to think, ooh, that's sick. But it is what it is. <laughs> Eight-year-old dude. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin solo today bringing to you a new podcast about Sasquatch. Today I'll be interviewing Robert Scavarla. Robert Scavarla is a parapolitics writer from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's written for Cream, Covert Action, and Diabolique magazines, and maintains a personal blog, Mondo Americana. You can find him on Twitter at Robert Scavarla. Before we started recording, Robert and I were having a conversation about the strange figure known as Richard Doty, straining heavily featured in Mark Pilkington's documentary Mirage Men, as well as his book, and how he claims that he had helped write several episodes of the X Files, although he did not say which episodes he wrote. We also are having a discussion about how eerie it is that the X-Files movie Fight the Future was heavily referencing the Oklahoma City bombing, including even modeling their miniature work, their simulated explosion of the FBI building featured at the beginning of the movie, off of their actual Oklahoma City bombing crater. So without further ado, here's Robert Scavarla. And no, this is not actually Tucker Carlson. This is Robbie Martin using an IA voice changer. Sorry if it's too creepy for you to handle. This character, Richard Doty, uh, who you say has actually made the claim uh, that he helped on some of these X-Files episodes. Well, so he hasn't said which specific ones. The one I'm thinking he was involved with was a season one episode called EBE, um, EBE being an acronym for Extraterrestrial Biological Entity, which is a phrase that was used in the 80s a lot for aliens to make it seem, you know, to make them seem more legitimate. Um, it's an episode where um, it starts off in, I think, Iraq or Turkey, um, somewhere overseas. Um, it may have been during the Iraq War. 
but um, something is shot down and there's a big disinformation campaign targeting Mulder and Scully. And um, I believe the lone gunmen are involved. Um, Deep Throat is still a part of the series at this point. So Deep Throat um, gives information to Mulder and then later admits he intentionally deceived him. Um, just because of the nature of what Dodie did, he was allegedly a disinformation specialist when he was working with Benowitz and um, Bill Moore. Um, I think that was probably the episode that if he had any connection to the X-Files and Dodie's a notorious liar, so he could not be telling the <laughs> truth here. That's the one that seems like it would be most appropriate. Give me some, I, cause I don't remember the exact episode you're talking about. What, is there any sort of, cause all the X-Files episodes for the most part seem to have some kind of gimmick or visual gimmick in it. Was this, was this the one where like the alien basically like explodes like sunlight and like burns people? No. So they sneak into um, like a military base and yeah. at the end it's revealed that the um, EBE is dead. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And Richard Doty um, from the movie Mirage Men, uh, he, I mean, from what I recall from that film, he actually, you know, fed disinformation directly to like some like indie journalists, including, um, I think she was a TV reporter who he provided some completely forged but believable looking documents that said that like our DNA comes from aliens. Yeah. Linda Moulton Howe. Um, yeah. She was a reporter, science journalist in the seventies. She made a documentary called the strange harvest in the late part of that decade. It's and cattle mutilation. Stuff, cattle right? mutilation. Yeah. It's actually yeah. really good. You can find it occasionally on YouTube. She's very litigious. So it gets pulled down frequently um, because she still sells it. And the follow-up strange harvest 93. But after that, she was, you know, big cattle mutilation researcher. She was working on a documentary for HBO called The E.T. Factor. And Dodie, you know, ingratiated himself with her to find out what she knew or to send disinformation. It isn't entirely clear. They both admit that they met each other. It's just not certain what actually happened. Because, again, UFO lore is very complicated and it's hard to tell who is a liar and who is not. Absolutely. And, I mean... Fast forward, you know, 30, 40 years and in, into the strange situation that we're in now where, <laughs> I mean, you've, you've written about this. I've, I was reading yeah. your piece about it. We seem like we mostly agree, even though you have way more knowledge about this culture and phenomenon than I do. Um, I mean, it's, would it just give me your sort of off the cuff thoughts or what, you know, how do you feel about all that? Cause that must've been, I don't know what it was like for you, but it was jarring and, and strange for me to just see all the sudden, you know, I think the 60 minutes special yeah. was probably what really clinched it for me that this was be getting mainstream approval and milit like military approval. Like it wasn't, didn't seem like these people were just all whistleblowers who were doing it on their own. And Louis Elizondo was, you know, rallying people together. It really seemed like a coordinated rollout. So I, I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the thing to think about with um, Big Lou, you know, Louis Elizondo, is how does the U.S. government handle whistleblowers? How did the Obama administration handle whistleblowers? How did the Trump administration <laughs> yeah, handle yeah, whistleblowers? Yeah, yeah. They get thrown in prison. No one yeah. has touched Lou. He just gets to keep on doing his thing. Chris Mellon, who was also involved in leaking the video in 2017 that set off the New York Times story. Nothing's happened to him. So these people are just allowed to go about their lives and do whatever the hell they want. And if you follow them over time, Lou has been getting, you know, more woo-woo in the sense that 
his claims of UFOs have slowly begin. They've started bringing in, you know, all of these exotic terms like exopolitics and all of this really weird shit that you don't normally see. So he's slowly becoming, you know, like an ancient aliens guy as time goes no on. No way. Yeah, I mean, he's getting into a lot of the spiritual end of things. Um, so my personal opinion, Lou is definitely someone who is involved in um, counterintelligence. He's definitely someone who was sent, you know, to spread the big lie. But um, personally, I think that it was used to, you know, instigate a new Cold War. Because I think 2016 is, you know, the U.S. government has always used conspiracy theories to some degree. In the 70s or 80s, they spread a theory called Yellow Rain. It was alleged it was alleged that they uh, the Soviet Union was using chemical weapons in, I think, like Laos or Thailand. It turned out it was like bumblebee pollen or something that was getting excreted into the rain. But the U.S. has never admitted that it spread this theory. It still maintains that biological chem uh, by biological or chemical weapons were used. So we do this and we do this and we do this. It's just in some periods we do it more. So I think Trump set off this thing where people recognize this was useful. People aren't inherently rational. You can prey on superstition. And in fact, like organizations like the OSS, the Rand Corporation, you can find um, documents from the 50s and 60s where they were doing this exact type of thing. Uh, there was uh, something called Project Troy, where they were engaging in psychological warfare, and one component was using or exploiting superstition. So I think that's part of what this is. It's relying on people's inherent irrationality to rebuild that Soviet menace, even though, you know, Russia today is not communist, Soviet, or whatever. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, I mean... I mean, I agree with what you're saying. I don't know enough about Louis Alzando, um, but I mean, it, it's like what you said at the very beginning of your response that what, what, what typically happens to whistleblowers, they're not allowed to go out there and go on a PR tour for years <laughs> to the point where they actually get like a nat. I don't know if it's on National Geographic, but these, those motherfuckers have a show now. Like Christopher Mellon and yeah. Louis Alzando like have a show yep. on TV, um, which is just ridiculous. I mean, like when it gets to that level, it's like, okay, come on, like- um, but you mentioned, and, and this might be a weird way to segue into the topic, but you mentioned the word woo woo. Oh yeah. And I, I, I hadn't heard that term personally until I started just, you know, as a hobby, uh, looking into like Sasquatch sightings and Sasquatch culture. And I kept hearing that term over and over again. And I want you to go into what that term means for you and, and means for people in the UFO community or in general, I wanted to just, yeah, use that as an opportunity to, to say that we started talking about UFOs and how we've just gotten this strange government approval of what, you know, largely was one of the probably the most popular um, sort of mixtures of American folklore and conspiracy in this country for decades. It has now government stamp of approval. So it's what's strange to me is after sort of just looking into Sasquatch stuff, um, one thing I found endearing about it, I think from the very beginning, because I started looking at it probably around the time like QAnon was was really exploding. And, you know, I developed sort of this resistance or this frustration over how like parapolitics and these conspiracies were sort of bleeding into 
uh, completely bleeding into like the current political matrix, I guess is what you would say in, in this country, at least like associating with, you know, Trump, uh, people's political alliances seem to uh, dictate which conspiracies they believed. And most, you know, even Epstein, you take any number of popular conspiracies now, they're very wrapped into our cultural American political zeitgeist. Um, and now that UFOs has gotten the government stamp of approval, it's kind of like that feels tainted in a way now too. Now, not saying it was never tainted before. Obviously, there are a bunch of disinformation people, you know, like spreading lies to confuse people like you, you went over. But what strikes me about Sasquatch culture is it's like still somehow there, at least in my mind, largely untainted by our political matrix, our political lens here. And it hasn't gotten uh, approval from the U.S. government yet. So <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you feel that it's in, as endearing as I do. Um but why don't you like tell me a little bit about woo woo, what that means for you, and give us just a little bit of information about your knowledge of Sasquatch and I don't know maybe tell us a little bit about the Bigfoot conventions you've uh, I don't know plural maybe you've only attended one but I've been to you have attended more than one, more than one. I'd well, love to hear about them Bigfoot so Bigfoot people don't necessarily do conventions I think that some of them do attend those types of things but. A lot of the stuff I've been to has been outdoors in part because of COVID. Um, so to start with woo-woo, that was a phrase I believe that was coined by skeptic James Randi in the 70s or 80s. And it came to be associated with like New Age stuff, spirituality, um, the occult, the paranormal, all of the ideas and stuff that you can't validate. And there are legitimate criticisms to be made of Randi, but he was at least able to call out, you know, bullshit artists like Uri er, Geller the guy who used to bend spoons with his mind. So yeah. he would refer refer to stuff like that as woo-woo. But over time, it's taken on more of a like colloquial meaning where it's been embraced within the Bigfoot community to an extent. Um, so with Bigfooters, you have generally two camps. You have like the hominid people, the gigantopithecus people, you know, the people who are trying to validate Bigfoot through science. And that's actually yeah. the group that has a much longer history going back to like the... 30s at least, but definitely beginning in a big way in the 50s and 60s. And it started with the Yeti. But then you have the other group, the Woo people, Woo Woo, whatever you want to call it, who are people, it's a mixture of people who come from different places. Some believe Bigfoot is an extraterrestrial, you know, he's an alien. Some believe he's a spiritual being. Um, I don't know if they worship him. I haven't encountered anyone like that yet. I'm sure there are, though. And then you have people who get into all kinds of weird new age stuff, you know, Bigfoot orbs, Bigfoot is an inter interdimensional traveler, all kinds of weird and unusual stuff like that. What's interesting is like in the UFO community, for example, you don't see crossover between those two groups that much. A lot of the UFO people who follow Lou, but still believe in trying to validate UFOs through science, they'll downplay that aspect of his personality. And they'll focus on like Bigfoot, uh, sorry, UFOs can be validated through the scientific method. We can find UFOs. We can prove they exist. Bigfooters are a little different. It's just, it all goes together. Um, the two festivals I went to this year, I went to one in Western Pennsylvania, which if you want to get into politics, it was a little strange. 
Um, I would love to. Yeah, yeah. I want to know. Because <laughs> I, yeah, tell me, tell me all about it. Well, so Bigfoot has an interesting political history because if you go all the way back to the very earliest days, um, some of the people who were developing the idea of Bigfoot were actually trying to do it to validate like race science. Uh, one of the earliest figures in the Bigfoot community was a Harvard anthropologist named Carlton Kuhn. He was actually an OSS officer. He was tangentially involved in the assassination of the leader of Vichy France, um, which is a really strange way of seeing how he ends up with Bigfoot. But he was uh, someone who believed that by proving the existence of the Yeti specifically, he could prove that races evolved at different paces. So, um, for example, by doing this, he could prove that the white race was superior and that they had evolved at a faster pace than people in Africa or wherever. Um, that generally fell away as cryptozoology evolved because over time it began incorporating a lot. Uh, it began incorporating ideas from peoples who were not necessarily European. Um, if you know, like the phrase Sasquatch isn't a European phrase. It comes from, I forget the Native American tribe, but it's a uh, anglicized version of how they would pronounce it. So, over time, it became, I guess you could say, less political in the sense that people who became attracted to Bigfoot were less inclined to use Bigfoot, you know, as an example of race science, where someone like Kuhn would. But the um, festival I went to in Western PA, you still had a political slant to it because I would say of the thousand people that were there, probably 75% were hardcore Trump supporters which was <laughs> unusual to me. Um, you would just walk around and literally you'd see either a picture of Bigfoot on a poster or you'd see a picture of Trump. That um, is amazing. Bigfoot carrying AK-47s was all over the place. They had a raffle or the they had a raffle for a rifle or multiple rifles. Rural Pennsylvania is not where I'm from, so it was interesting seeing the political component to that core of Bigfoot believers being teased out. Uh, and even within, so at that festival, there was a mixture of people who believed in Bigfoot as like a spiritual, intergalactic, extraterrestrial creature, alongside people who were like, yeah, we're going to get plaster casts of his footprint, and we're going to prove he exists through the scientific method. So that was really strange, because you can still see, um, even within that community, um, where there is a political element, most people don't pay attention to it, because they're all bound together by this one usual belief. And, and there's also seems to be another divide from what I've seen, uh, just touching on this idea of a divide. Um, and there, you said there's some crossover between these two camps, but it does seem to be, um, and you know, maybe this also exists in UFO, UFO culture to some extent, so you could speak to this, but the idea that Bigfoot, like Harry and the Hendersons, uh, you know, the idea that Bigfoot is a friendly hominid uh, that wants to make friends with humans, that doesn't kill, that's sort of almost like a pacifist, that just sort of keeps to itself in the woods versus this idea um, that I've been exposed to more recently, you know, in things like Legends of Boggy Creek, there's been other mm -hmm. cultural reference points for this, but the idea that Bigfoot is like the most dangerous predator in the forest and that uh, you better watch out if you go out in the forest by yourself because you these things kill humans. And in addition to that, the sort of missing 411 crossover <laughs> where it's like, guess what? 
it wasn't just that we have all these mysterious disappearances. We're, we're basically taking you to the place of saying like, we think Bigfoot might've done this or a cryptid or some unknown force in the woods that is supernatural. Um, so I, I find that interesting that, you know, there's divide between those two camps where, you know, I, I don't know how, how common it is, but I would assume there are probably people out there with the intent of actually killing a Bigfoot at this point. Um, you know, that maybe you don't even have any, uh, wouldn't even see Bigfoot as like a human like, or, or they wouldn't have any necessarily moral qualms, let's say of, of doing something uh, like that. Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Cause I know there's, you know, there's idea of like friendly aliens and, you know, evil aliens who are sort of prodding us and experimenting with us all throughout UFO culture as well. Yeah. So, um, where Bigfoot is seen as like an apex predator, generally that falls within the camp of people who view Bigfoot as something that can be proved exists. You know, people yeah. who are into the field of cryptozoology or the science of hidden creatures, because mm -hmm. they see Bigfoot as if we can't find Bigfoot, if we can't prove Bigfoot exists right now, Bigfoot is something that obviously is beyond our capabilities of measuring. So a predator like that would be something you'd have to be careful of. Now, even within that, there are groups who do believe that you should kill Bigfoot. Um, there was one recently who I think was featured in the Wall Street Journal. Um, it was the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. If you go to their website, it's literally just a bunch of dudes like LARPing. They're in the military. They, you know, put together operations like Operation Forest Vigil and stuff wow. like this, where it's like they're out in the woods trying to hunt Bigfoot because they think if they shoot and kill Bigfoot, that will prove Bigfoot exists. Um, so it's a nature conservancy where they want to kill the <laughs> thing they're trying to protect. That is, that's amazing. I mean, I will say just because you just said that, um, I have, it's funny, The probably the most common political, like American political matrix talking points I hear come out of Bigfoot culture seem to be like anti-environmentalist. Um, <laughs> like they do, I have heard people bring up many, many times the spotted owl that, that like killed, you know, the ability to own certain amounts of, you know, types of land mm -hmm. in the United States because of this protection of the spotted owl. And then you sort of get this reverse conspiracy that, well, the logging industry here in this country somehow uh, needs to keep secret in like in leagues with the U.S. government, the existence of Bigfoot. Otherwise, it would threaten the entire logging industry uh, as we know it. I'm sure you've probably heard some variation of that. Yeah, I mean, there are schisms even within the, in that group. Um, Bigfooters, I would say, largely like the people who join Bigfoot groups are People who can afford, you know, all kinds of crazy equipment. It's almost like ghost hunters where yeah. part of the fun is like buying all the cool gadgets and then hanging out in the woods and drinking beer. But within that, like when you mentioned the nature component, there are people who are very respectful of nature, who are very respectful of the native cultures that come that like the idea of Bigfoot comes from. Um, there's a writer. Very good. Um, I like him a lot. Lauren Coleman who is well-known in the Bigfoot community. He pops up in documentaries all the time. He was the guy who created the International Cryptozoology Museum in Maine. Um, more than anybody, he's probably done a lot of the modern work of making Bigfoot like a respectable idea as much as Bigfoot can be. Um, mm -hmm. If you go to his museum in Maine, and I've been there, 
Um, you know, there's lots of interesting stuff that you can look through. It's not fashion like a traditional museum, but, you know, it airs, it adds an air of legitimacy to it. And when he engages with, you know, the various ideas, um, he's always as respectful as someone can be of, like, the Native people who he's writing about. And he also gets into some fun stuff on the side. He has one book where there's an essay connecting um, a Yeti hunt to the CIA's war in Tibet. So it's... He's someone I would recommend looking up, but there are lots of different political perspectives even within the UFO and Bigfoot communities. It doesn't always have to be like inherently right wing. Yeah, but as you said, you know, I would say the majority of (laughs) the sightings come from people who seem to be, let's say, more on the conservative spectrum of the political of, you know, wheel, I guess, in this country in terms of most of them. And I and I I don't even know if this is true, but my impression is it seems like most of the more um, detailed or or interesting sightings are from hunters, um, from people who seem to have a lot of experience in the woods. You know, they make sure to say or to establish very quickly that I know what a bear looks like. You know, they've seen bears, they've seen every type of animal, so they can assess that this definitely wasn't you know a cougar or a black bear or whatever i'd say probably one of the most interesting things to me about the sort of government approved ufo uap rollout uh, that happened in the last couple years was basically people like david fravor and some of these other military pilots speaking very much in depth about their you know alleged eyewitness accounts of these uaps like the tic tac ufo yeah and there's to me something very captivating, something very compelling about when you're watching a person where at a certain point you're like, well, this person doesn't seem like they're acting. You know, they might be a really good liar, but it seems, it would just seem strange for me for someone to completely make up a story like that and then be able to tell it credibly. And I don't know if that has a similar effect on you, but I it really works on me personally. When I see something like that, I'm like, you know, I kind of don't, I just don't think this guy is lying. Now, not to say I think that he really saw this necessarily, but I, I get, and I get into that territory a lot with the Sasquatch stuff too, where I'm like, it doesn't seem like these people are delusional or completely lying. And I'm wondering what, what is your experience when, you know, ingesting those sort of firsthand eyewitness accounts and either with UFOs or Sasquatch and does that work on you as well as it does on me? Where if it doesn't seem like someone's a liar or an actor, then I'm like, you know, there's maybe something to this. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's hard with um, first-person accounts because our natural incl- inclination as humans is not to call someone a liar. You don't, you know, there's that idea that you, you want to agree with someone. You want to get along with them. You don't. Most people, I would argue, are not confrontational. So when someone makes a claim, an extraordinary claim like that, it's almost always compelling. And you see this, I wrote an article um, tangentially around this on the Satanic Panic in the 90s, um, where there was this production company, Jeremiah Films, where they would make documentaries and largely they were built out of firsthand accounts, personal testimony, because personal testimony is almost unimpeachable. Even if you call someone a liar, like, you have to go to extraordinary measures to prove that they're lying. So um, I'm with you in the sense that when people make these claims, generally 
I don't try to interrogate them too deeply when people say they've seen a UFO. I have a really close personal friend who claims to have seen both a Bigfoot and UFOs. I don't care if he did or didn't. I'm not going to try and prove him wrong or right one way or the other. It's just, you know, it rises to a level where I become annoyed by it if people are using it in a way where it could potentially harm other people, where it becomes a strategy for psychological purposes for like the military or the government, things like yeah. that. So when it comes to like the UFO stuff, I generally speak up a lot about that because a lot of the personal testimony that we see from people is stuff that it's like you can't prove one way or the other. And very clearly, the people who are doing this, you know, current former pilots, it would have to go through some level of authorization with the military, at least if it was um, current military. And there has been some of that. So exactly. Yeah, it's strange to me when you see firsthand accounts, personal testimony on situations like this. Um, David Polites with the missing 411, if you followed that, and it seems like you have, he's charted this course where initially he's like, hey, what's happening to all these people in the U.S. park system? <laughs> and now I think his most recent trailer that he put out was like the UFO connection, where it's like Bigfoot, UFOs, whatever, it's all one. Yeah. are responsible for making people disappear. So like something like that, again, I kind of push back on a little bit and be like, okay, but where's the evidence? But yeah. like most of the time, like at the Bigfoot Festival, um, they had lectures throughout the day. I was sitting there listening to people talk and they were talking about like one dude was talking about how he communicated through telepathy with Bigfoot via meditation. And a woman asked a question about like how she had seen a tree that had been pulled out of the ground and placed upside down back into the hole. And she thought it was Bigfoot. And I'm like, I don't really care about this. You know, I'm not going to say anything because stuff like this doesn't necessarily harm people um if they begin you know if eventually like the person who is communicating with bigfoot via telepathy begins hawking like snake oil or something then yeah but for me personal testimony it's I, i used to view it more strongly and now even in a lot of other areas it's hard for me to take you know someone's personal story at face value just because of all of the groups i've interacted with and the level of deception that I'm used to. Because even within the Bigfoot community, you know, there's the famous movie, uh, well, not movie, that clip, Patterson-Gimlin. Uh, it's like a minute long with Bigfoot walking around. We have no way of knowing if it's real or not, but it's still today one of the most compelling pieces of evidence because no one has really been able to either prove or disprove it. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think um, there's some really fascinating things to me about that. And and I don't know if this is relatable to your experience, but I remember just assuming or just largely being told. And, you know, when I, I had seen the Patterson Gimlin footage at some point in the eighties, I'm sure when I was a kid, mm-hmm. I was too young to see that famous in search of episode that a lot of people reference as being their entryway into Bigfoot, which I think showed the Patterson Gimlin footage. But I remember just, I remember just thinking the way it was framed to me was this is fake footage. Um, it's a guy in a suit. Yeah. And I never even had the idea in my head that there must be a lot of people out there who actually think this is real footage. I just assumed that most people thought it was fake or even people in the Bigfoot believing group thought that it was probably fake. But that doesn't turn out to be the case at all. In fact, there's there is hours and hours, sometimes years of research put into people who are, are like 
let's try to debunk this sort of wink, wink, but who, you know, come out the other side saying like everything stands up, you know, uh, the elevated toes coming off the ground, like primate leg, the, uh, the breasts, you know, which we'll, yeah. we'll go into that subject, but the, but that whole, just the whole idea that, like you said, like it is kind of, it is not, it's, it's, it's holds a very special place, I think in, in American culture too, for other reasons, but it is a very interesting video in the sense that the video itself, if you're not going into it with this sort of pre-baked framing that it's fake or a guy in a suit, it isn't, it isn't a video that you could be like, this is obviously fake for these reasons, or this is real for these reasons. It kind of sits in this re- weird zone. Um, and I think part of that is probably because it's actually on film, um, which I think, you know, makes it unique, especially for the time. Um, but what, what was like, what were your first impressions of that? Do you remember when you first saw that and how you understood it at the time? And, and were you surprised? Like, did you learn later? Like I did that, um, that there were a lot of people who took it very seriously still. Yeah. Uh, well, so it's funny you mentioned um, the In Search Of episode because it's almost similar to the way this Bruder film um, hit the, you know, popular consciousness with uh, yeah. Geraldo Rivera's um, good, uh, it's what, Good Night America was the show he used to re- the talk show where mm-hmm. that was the first time it aired. So in the 70s, you had a lot of that going around. Um, but my entire life I was under, I was always told it wasn't real footage and I don't personally believe it's real. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, lots of people do, and there's been people who've, you know, put forth evidence and then it's been, you know, people who have attacked that. So I don't care one way or the other, if it's real or not. Um, it's an interesting artifact to me. And I think probably one of the most interesting aspects of it were the people who made it themselves, Roger Patterson specifically, um, when they filmed it, he, I believe, had been diagnosed with cancer of the lymph nodes, so he knew he didn't have long in this world. And from what I understand from secondhand accounts, you know, again, here's people's stories. Um, he allegedly made the footage to set up his wife for the rest of her life, which it did, because this was in the period where tabloid media was really starting to take off on TV. Um, mm-hmm. The video, uh, not the video, the film was made in 67. And it, you know, over time became more and more popular in part because of In Search Of and the mainstreaming of, you know, paranormal and supernatural programming. So for most of my life, I've always been told, you know, it was just hoax footage. But as you mentioned, doing it on film is something that makes it much more compelling because it gives it that level of granular detail you won't see on video. Um a few years ago, I was trying to work on a project about Bigfoot museums. Since 2000, I believe around six or seven of them have opened in the United States. And I was talking to a woman who worked at the China Flat Museum, which is one of the first. Um, the museum opened, I believe, in the 80s, but they reorganized it around 2000 so that, you know, it's primarily based around Bigfoot now. And this woman was a volunteer, and she just kept referring to Patty, the Bigfoot in the movie, um, her tatas, as she called them, swaying. And she's like, you, you could not fake that. It's real based on the fact that you can see her breasts swaying as she walks. And I, I was just astounded by that, you know, the way people attach to certain very specific details. And the only way you could get that is through a film like this. If it was shot on video a decade or more later, it wouldn't be as compelling. If it was just a still photograph you wouldn't be able to see the actual swaying of the, you know, breasts in the footage. So that yeah. 
film stock that was used, like the fact that it was shot on film is fascinating alone because of that period, you don't really have any comparable UFO footage on film. There are a limited number of examples, but nothing as famous as this. Yeah. And we had spoken uh, before we recorded, I was like, you know, what UFO footage exists out there that's actually shot on film pre videotape, pre like camcorders, pre, you know, home VHS stuff. And I think you were only able to find one and it's a very, it's hard to discern what's happening. It, it, it looks basically like a tiny dot um, that looks like it's about to land on something or sort of falling from the sky. And there's a very interesting, you know, whole backstory on that, which I don't know if we'll have time to get into, but we should talk about, I don't know. Do you want to just give a brief summary on yeah. where that footage comes from? Cause even th- that whole story you told me is very strange. I'd never heard anything about that before. So this is also mentioned in Mirage Men, uh, Mark Pilkington's book. And I think I touch on it briefly in a series of articles I wrote for uh, Diabolique magazine, but the footage was part of a documentary that was being produced. Um, I believe in tandem with the department of defense, they at least were backing it temporarily It was made in the 70s. It was initially called UFOs Past, Present, Future. And there was a corresponding book that went along with it, um, written by a man named Bob Abenegger. He had worked in advertising. I believe it was the Gray Advertising Firm or one of the big ones in New York City. Um, He was approached, he said, I believe, by someone in the Nixon administration or the military to produce this. And one of the big appeals of this documentary was going to be that they were going to have exclusive footage of an alleged meeting. between UFOs and the military at Holloman Air Force Base in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Um, But during the course of the production, the footage got pulled. Emenegger allegedly came up with it years later. The uh, version that's online now is only a couple of seconds, I think maybe like 13 seconds to a minute long, similar to the Patterson-Gimlin film, which is only a minute long. But in it, you see just a dot jumping around. It's actually comparable to a lot of the home VHS footage that you began seeing in the late 80s and early 90s because yes. there isn't really a whole lot you can do with UFOs the way you can with Bigfoot. Even if there were um, an ability to shoot it on film beyond this, you would have to be so close that you would probably be able to see it fall apart if it was a hoax. Yeah, that's a good point. It's like trying to shoot like an airplane from the ground. Yeah. You know, if you zoomed in on one close enough to actually where it would be discernible what it is, um, you'd have to have a really good camera, first of all, to do that at the time. But yeah, it would. So that's a really interesting point. Um, But I mean, that I I think it it is a very, very compelling piece of footage, the Patterson Gimlin uh, footage for a lot of reasons. Absolutely. and I just wanted to go into some of them that, um, you know, I didn't really consider all these years, even though I've, I'm, it's very well known to me. I had seen it many times. But uh, you did mention there's a Pruder film also, which I think is a really interesting comparison because one of the first sort of actually useful looking sort of technological upgrades that I ever saw of the Zapruder film was sort of a frame rate smoothing and stabilization enhancement version. And I don't remember, maybe you know who's responsible for that, but when that was first presented online, I remember being like, wow, this is like a really good use of like what you can do with film. You know, you can go back because it's in such high resolution mm-hmm. on the negative, blow it up in a computer, denoise it, and you're, a- you're able to actually extrapolate a lot more information from an old piece of film than you would be like, 
you know, a standard VHS tape. Some of the older, like, master VHS, you know, systems that they would use at, in TV studios, or you could still grab really good footage from those, but it's still not as good as, like, a 16-millimeter strip of film. Um, and this was also shot on Kodachrome, which I didn't realize until a couple of days before speaking to you. And that also... I think sort of elevates it a little bit into the level of like, it It has more of a filmic look like filmic, meaning like Hollywood production look too. Yeah. Like it has the right color grading and has, it has, it doesn't look like a shitty piece of film. There's plenty of people, you know, there's plenty of like bad film footage you can find from the, the late sixties that looks nowhere as good quality as this. Um, and, you know, you did mention that Roger Patterson, uh, there's, there's some, uh, claim out there that he was trying to set up his wife uh, for life because he knew he was dying of lymphoma. Um, I did want to mention this, you know, this interesting aspect of it um, that I only learned recently is that they were originally not going out there with the intent uh, to actually try to catch real footage of Sasquatch. They were going out there originally. They sort of location scouted. Um, they even, Gimlin was already involved too. He had already hired him um, at the time to basically, uh, do, I guess you would call it red face, native American, uh, makeup, like brown himself up on film and pretend to be like a native American. Um, what's the right word? Like, a <laughs> like a guide. Yeah. And it was going to be a pseudo like fake documentary where they would go try to find Sasquatch. And then there was seemingly plans to actually simulate, you know, a Sasquatch sighting in this. So, a lot of people use that and that's real. That's all been like proven. That's not, I don't even think that Gimlin has said that that's not true. Um, it, you know, I don't know if something he likes to talk about cause I know that he was, you know, m largely not talking about it for a long time and he kind of started to more recently, but uh, it's, it's, I think a lot of people have leaned on that maybe a little too hard to try to disprove that the actual Patty footage um, is real by saying that, like, well, obviously he, you know, was obviously trying to find a monkey suit already to film this footage. So that's, you know, that's this monkey suit. Um, but I mean, I've I've looked all over the place, and it seems, it seems like I'm right to say this that nobody's really found or identified like like what suit did they use? What you know, what kind of monkey mask did they use? Was this prefabricated? Was it custom made? Really expensive suit because. On the other hand, Planet of the Apes and 2001 A Space Odyssey um, were fairly cutting edge sort of monkey, you know, uh, suit effects for the time. And those both came out, I think, somewhere over maybe a year after this was shot. So let's just say this is completely fake. It is a total hoax. It's a very, very well done one in the sense that even the suit itself, even in like high resolution you know, blow up versions, cleaned up versions of this footage you could see online, it looks pretty good as far as a monkey suit is concerned, you know, compared to like major Hollywood productions. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think if it is a hoax, and, you know, I don't think Bigfoot is real personally, but if it is a hoax, <laughs> um, it's probably still the best one anyone's done within the field of, you know, Bigfoot research, Bigfoot, whatever you want to call it, because... Even today, people still show it as legitimate. When you watch, you know, the Bigfoot Hunter shows on TV, they will still reference the Patterson-Gimlin film. When people talk about it, they'll still reference the Patterson-Gimlin film. 
you know, there's been articles since 67, or rather, I would say probably the early 70s when it really started to get known. Uh, there's been dozens, if not hundreds of articles attempting to uh, debunk it. So if it's a hoax, it's the most compelling version of that, you know, anyone's ever come up with. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. And I think that most people probably haven't, you know, if you've seen the footage before, there's a high likelihood that you haven't actually seen the full thing before. I think it's somewhere in the the minute range. And yeah. I, the first third of the film, uh, they usually don't see the this part when they air it on TV in these shows, is like shaky cam. It's, it's you know, allegedly, I, I, um, and I don't know if it was Patterson or Gimlin who's actually the one shooting it. Do you know who was the one holding the camera? I don't recall offhand, no. Um, okay. the only, so the only thing I can really say about the footage is that, like you said, most people see, I think about what, like 13 seconds at most. And it's yeah, just Patty walking across the screen, looking back at the camera. Yeah, exactly. And so at the beginning, what I find really compelling about it, especially in the era that we're now living in with filmmaking, uh, with found footage movies becoming such like a mainstay, <laughs> even in like theaters for a long time. I mean, Paranormal Activity had like something like four sequels that all got theatrical releases. Uh, the Blair Witch Project, which I would even argue is kind of it was, seems very Sasquatch inspired, except it's 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 actually probably one of the more well done movies about Sasquatch that's not about Sasquatch. Because if you if you kind of uh, you know replace the witch you know, the whole witch concept in that movie was Sasquatch. A lot of the things that happened to them in that movie, you know, are very similar to a lot of Sasquatch stories you hear, you know, getting your tent messed with when you're camping and hearing strange sounds and cracking in the woods and things like that. Um, you know, weird things made out of tree branches, you know, even though they're sort of more occult in Blair Witch. Uh, but that beginning of the actual Patterson Gimlin footage, that first, I don't know, 10, 13 seconds is is a very very good and you know from the perspective of this let's say this was a hoax it was all stage it was very smart and to like simulate the idea of like oh no we got caught by surprise and we got to like get off the horse and get the camera you know set up like kind of like it it feels like it was a completely unprepared encounter uh when you watch the whole video there's you know, lots of shaky cam that you can't even really see what's going on for, at the beginning until he sort of hones in on Patty. And I think that that's really interesting because, and I don't, and I can't say if it had an influence on found footage films or, you know, um, mockumentaries or documentaries later on. Um, but it's very, very, uh, from the perspective of this was staged, this was a hoax, I think it's extremely intelligent and creative to even have that included in it. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, it's 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 sort of weird to think about because from the perspective of it being a hoax, it is technically like the first, you could argue, like some of the first like found footage horror filmmaking ever done. Um, that and it and it and for and it, from that perspective, it's really well done. Um, so I don't know if you have any comments on that. Uh, yeah. But. So I mean, um, I would definitely argue it's in the tradition of found footage. Um, some of the earliest found footage movies predating the Blair Witch were movies about UFOs or um, cryptids. There was the McPherson tape in the late '80s, which was later readapted by the same filmmaker for the UPN Network as, I believe, um, Alien Abduction, um, Incident at Lake County. 
which was in 98, 97 or 98. And there was a Jersey Devil themed found footage movie, The Lost, The Last Broadcast, which came out in 98. So they were using similar ideas to what was being conveyed in the Patterson-Gimlin film, because you only see the creature, the UFOs, the aliens in brief snippets, you know, 13 seconds, 30 seconds, and then the camera moves away because of the way the camera jerks around from the first person perspective. So I would definitely agree with you that it set a precedent for that. But even beyond that, shortly after the footage got out, you know, in the 70s specifically, you had pseudo documentaries, which were really taking off production Mm. companies like Sun Classic Pictures, who produced or distributed films like um, Chariots of the Gods, um, The Mysterious Monsters, which was specifically about Bigfoot and the Yeti. So it helped give rise immediately in the 70s to a lot of the cryptid culture, the woo-woo, a lot of the stuff that was taking off in that period. So it had, I think, a profound effect on American pop culture. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it it really did. And I, you know, even just from the perspective of what you just said, I'm surprised it's not more referenced these days. Like it's, it you kind of, it's kind of relegated to the realm now of like on these like Sasquatch shows on TV, which there are like tons of, like I didn't realize after finding Bigfoot, there's, I don't know, it seems like there's like three, three more, uh, you know, that just seem to just keep going. So there's, there's something really fascinating there about how those shows came to be what they are today. Because if you look in that period, the seventies, Um, Cable hadn't taken off yet, so a lot of that stuff was relegated to independent films or third-party production companies like Sun Classic. But those movies did really, really well. At one point, Sun Classic, which was an independent production company based out of Provo, Utah, they um, were rivaling the major studios, so they ended up working for like broadcast television networks and producing all kinds of original content. Um, But then shows like In Search Of came along, and they were that was syndicated. Over time, you see in the 70s and 80s, these shows, which are really scattershot, they bring in like UFOs, Bigfoot, near-death experiences, all of these unusual and strange things. And then as those individually take off and people begin to specialize in those fields, you begin to see people claiming you know, knowledge as experts or being certified by other people as experts. By the 90s, you start seeing shows like Encounters and Sightings, which are devoted specifically to UFOs. By the end of that decade, you see ghost hunting shows really taking off, and you see Bigfoot shows take off in the 2000s. So over time, you know, the economic necessities of capitalism, of cable television, made it so that these shows would become the most popular things on television because they're so cheap to produce. And eventually, you know, you could develop audiences for this where people would see these shows and become attracted to individual ideas. Yeah, it's so fascinating, too, because as I'm watching, let's just take one example, and it's not of a Sasquatch show, but it's, I don't know what if the show is just straight up called Skinwalker Ranch, but that reality show that they made about Skinwalker Ranch, I'm watching that thinking, okay, well, like, we have this, you know, most people have the understanding now that reality shows are fake or staged um, or set up, you know, in some way they're stage managed and to some degree, it's not reality what you're watching, so the whole thing almost seems like a paradox where it's like, if let's just say in some, you know, reality where 
there was a discovery made on like as they were filming one of these shows like on, let's say someone ran into sasquatch and actually got footage of one on finding bigfoot nobody would believe it simply for the fact that it's on finding bigfoot it seems like a you know a joke to most people so that i mean it, it's strange to think about it from that perspective too like um so i don't know i mean i don't know i mean i know a lot of people actually in within these realms too like within the bigfoot community look down on shows um like finding bigfoot but you know when you talk about some of these people that you encountered at this um bigfoot convention i don't know what the, that's not the right word for it i don't, I don't know yeah i mean they do have a, a they have conventions conferences what i went to were more like festivals the first one was in western pennsylvania i think it was literally called like the greater western pennsylvania bigfoot festival the second one, um, and we haven't really gotten into this, was for a uh, regional variant in uh, Lancaster County. There is an oh, wow. oral tradition known as the Albert Witch, which is a short Bigfoot that throws apples at people. And that comes out of the um, a combination of Pennsylvania Dutch immigrants and the Susquehannock people who had settled in that area um, many, many years ago. And it literally is... Uh, like a play on the phrase apple snitch within Pennsylvania Dutch. But there are all kinds of regional variants like that, which is one of the reasons why I love tracking down these unusual festivals, especially the outdoor ones and going there because that one was, it wasn't as well organized as the one in Western Pennsylvania, but you had much more of a local flavor. You got to learn the history of the Albert witch and they talked about um, a lot of other local urban legends or stories, um, one in particular, Toad Road, which is allegedly a gate to hell. So you get within those like communities, you get all kinds of weird variations. It closed out with, um, I I'm not even sure how to phrase this. I guess it's Christian folk magic known as powwowing, which again is um, an amalgam of Pennsylvania Dutch immigrants interacting with local Native American tribes and creating a kind of like evangelical laying hands type of thing, but mm -hmm. considered literally to be magic. So you get all of these strange woo-woo ideas within the Bigfooters at these places. And yeah, let's go into some of that woo-woo stuff a little bit more. Cause you, you know, a lot of these people here were talking about who just get really into collecting the gadgets, you know, probably the same type of guys who, you know, would be collecting gadgets, you know, at home with their home entertainment system but it's like they've chosen, this is one of their outlets. You know, they buy like the thermal cameras. Um, they buy like, you know, a lot of people try to get Sasquatch on trail cams, which I want to talk to you about a little later. But some of those people, I mean, even seem to believe in a lot of the woo-woo stuff too. I mean, because it seems like all this goes back to, because I was listening to this, I don't know if you've heard this podcast, Sasquatch Chronicles. Yeah. Um, they the, Even the host of it, and he's, I don't know what his actual beliefs are specifically but he does seem to insinuate um not necessarily like he's a woo-woo guy and he does actually platform a lot of that stuff on the show it's more like he's he he'll just sort of throw out a lot of the time he's like you know it's it's really weird to me it, it doesn't make sense how it's like there's all these trail cams and you know all these footprints and and all these sightings but you know where's the proof where's like the video footage well it's like how do you how do you explain that he'll he'll sort of turn to the guests and put that on them to have them kind of explain that. But it seems like most of the time no one really can. And I don't know, do you see that as maybe part of the reason why this, the woo woo stuff seems to be um, 
within the Bigfoot community so much is because there is no real, like if you try to explain it with science, it doesn't make sense why something that's actually living in the woods would not even be picked up on like trail cams. You know, maybe it makes sense that they wouldn't get close enough to humans to be picked up on like an iPhone or something, but trail cams seem like pretty, like you can pick up anything on there. People get mountain lions on trail cams all the time. I mean, stuff that you'd never see in the wild. So I don't know. Do you see that as a as sort of a window into the woo stuff or is that completely separate to you? Well, so, I mean, I think there's a number of things happening in an instance like that. I think people do turn to woo eventually because in many ways it's hard to justify a continued belief. You know, there's that sociological belief, cognitive dissonance, uh, which was first theorized by Leon Festinger about a UFO cult, oddly enough, where he discussed the idea that people have ideas and when confronted with contradictory information, they have to adjust their beliefs in a way where, you know, things can remain, you know, copacetic, where they can either. Most people don't want to admit they're wrong, especially if they've devoted large portions of their lives to doing something. If they joined a cult, if they've spent years out in the woods hunting Bigfoot, if they've done all of these strange, unusual things. So they'll find justifications for it to help them continue along in their beliefs and. With something like that, if you are, you know, a hominid person and a gigantopithecus person, you believe Bigfoot is an, you know, hidden ape. At a certain point, it becomes difficult to continue justifying, well, why can't we find him? So some people will turn to, you know, Bigfoot has cloaking abilities like a chameleon. Bigfoot's an interdimensional being who can pass between this realm and another one. Bigfoot orbs, you know, things like that. But on another level, I mean... Americans are just fucking weird, man. Um, religion in America has always been strange. The version of Christianity that we have today is not what we had a hundred years ago. Um, you know, there's this idea, especially within conspiracy research, you know, and when I say conspiracy research, I mean like academics, conspiracy studies. They talk about religion and beliefs in America being improvisational, which means that people will just pick and choose what works for them. And over time, it becomes accepted. And to some degree, you see this within, especially like the UFO community, go back a hundred years and you have people like William Dudley Pelly and his um, fascist silver shirts. He believed in UFOs. He was a follower of the I am cult. Um, so he was able to cobble together like this weird version of Christian, Christian mysticism, which accounted for UFOs. So this is something that isn't unusual. You see it all over the place in America. Um, so I think a lot of people do turn to woo, if you want to call it that. Um, they turn to Bigfoot as a spiritual creature because it's just a natural extension of the American imagination. You know, this idea that in America, anything is real if you believe it is. And there also does seem to be a little bit of a stronger, you know, I don't, I mean, there's some element of this in UFO culture too, with things like the Anasazi, but I, I probably you know, I'm getting a warped version of that from the X-Files, but <laughs> there's a lot of Native American folklore that a lot of these people lean into yeah. to uh, validate. It seems like the most reverence, you know, I ever hear these sort of types of people having for Native Americans is Bigfoot. It's it's kind of interesting. Like, um, and, you know, there is some truth to the idea that there is, there's a lot of folklore that that goes across many tribes all over uh, the United States. It's not just localized to one or two tribes. Yeah. And there's also pictographs um, of the wild man, the hairy wild men um, that a lot of Bigfoot researchers also like to point to. Um, so I don't know. What are your thoughts on how 
uh, much they lean into that. And, and, you know, you'll even steer, like, I've, I, I don't know who this guy is. Maybe it's the same guy who goes on different podcasts, but there's people now who, you know, are like Native American tribal representatives who will tell very uh, wild stories about their current ongoing multiple encounters with Sasquatch. Um, and, you know, I don't know if they're just completely hoaxers, just exploiting their sort of tribal status or what that's about. But, I mean, there does seem to be, it seems to be kind of actually also hard or difficult to find what the real truth is when it comes to, like, if you try to research this online, for example, like when I was re doing research for this podcast, it was difficult for me to find, like, you know, non-Bigfoot centric uh, websites that were talking about this, the subject of Native Americans tales about wild men or Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Um, it like, uh, you know, you've, you've looked into things as obscure as this apple throwing localized <laughs> version of a, a small Sasquatch. Like, so you, I mean, tell us a little bit about, I don't know, what's some of the more compelling Native American folklore about Sasquatch and is it even true that the term Sasquatch itself is a Native American word? Well, I mean, so when you talk about Bigfoot or like the idea of Bigfoot, it's not just even Native Americans. I mentioned earlier the Yeti, the abominable snowman. Yeah. That was really what kicked off the Bigfoot craze in the United States in the 50s and 60s. And that was based on oral traditions in Tibet. Um, there's the Agogwe, which is an African version of Bigfoot based in Zimbabwe and Congo. So this is a concept that travels across cultures, and I think part of that is because the concept of the wild man predates, you know, most modern, you know, predates modernity in some sense. If you go back to the beginning of, like, written language, there's Enkido, um, that character in um, Gilgamesh, who is essentially just a wild man. In the Bible, there's Esau. So this character persists both in Western and non-Western cultures. It's just that... There's a much stronger oral tradition legacy within um, Native American cultures here in the United States. So that's why people typically have leaned on it for a variety of reasons, whether it's because it's a fetishization of Native cultures, which is common in the United States on both the left and the right, um, whether it's because people do have a genuine respect for those beliefs. And I think some people in the Bigfoot community do. I've mentioned Lauren Coleman. Um, I, I think it's complicated when you bring in native cultures when you bring in uh you know like the yeti from tibet because it's difficult again we go back to that story about first person accounts oral traditions are based on typically first person accounts what someone saw and they passed it on to someone else so how do you disprove that how do you disprove uh, an oral tradition that goes back hundreds or thousands of years so I think the stories themselves are often compelling, and I think a lot of people want to believe them or be respectful of them. Um, I've encountered some unusual versions of that online. Um, if you get into cryptid groups specifically, more recently a lot of people have tried to embrace it who are what we would, I guess, call left-leaning, people who want to have respect for um, non-white or non-Western cultures. So, for example, you have something like the Wendigo. And I remember being in a meme group on Facebook or somewhere, I forget where, and people started freaking out because they because technically you're not supposed to say the Wendigo's name. So they were angry that other people would type the phrase Wendigo. And then, obviously, that turned into people doing it intentionally to fuck with them. So I think some of it is 
in the modern context, a lot of people who have an interest in Native cultures or non-Western cultures or non-white cultures and want to learn more about them, but they only have a base level knowledge, so they run with that. And you see that a lot in the Bigfoot community. People will, you know, take a bit or piece of information from a culture and pass it along as accurate without fully understanding what they're using or even the concept itself. So Bigfoot is kind of fraught in the sense that it's a lot of information coming from different sources, and some of those sources don't understand the information they're getting. So it's difficult to attack it, if you want to call it that. It's difficult to engage with it on a level where you can say, is this person legitimate or not? When I see First Nations peoples, uh, First Nation peoples who are claiming to be, you know, Bigfoot authorities, who am I to say they're not? You know, who is a Bigfoot authority? Because there isn't really a way you can get accredited doing that. (laughs) You know, there's no Bigfoot university. So I, I just, again, go back to that thing. If it's not hurting people, I don't care. You know, if someone wants to claim they're a Bigfoot expert and they have a legitimate background um, within that culture, like they can meet the culture's requirements for being a part of that, sure, be a Bigfoot expert. It's no worse than, you know, a guy on Finding Bigfoot talking about it. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned, you know, this idea of firsthand accounts being hard to verify and how most of these, even though some of them are compelling, are all uh, firsthand accounts. One difference I've noticed, uh, you know, between this and UFO culture um is that there are a lot of mass sighting accounts with ufos a lot um and even videotape uh, in some instances you know alleged uh uap or ufo sightings around crowds of people you don't get that very often at all with bigfoot or sasquatch sightings and i'm just wondering if you've noticed that or maybe there's maybe there are are there any famous um sightings that involved like you know, more than two people, groups of people. I know so there's been some stories about loggers, um, you know, all witnessing them once. But, you know, you mostly hear those secondhand. Have you heard any firsthand accounts um, from multiple people in something that, you know, was like a not a mass site necessarily, but like, you know, a group of people who would all claim they saw the same thing? Yeah, so I'm not personally aware of any mass Bigfoot sightings, I think. So within the UFO community, there's something known as flaps. It's this idea that one big when one UFO sighting occurs, multiple happen after that. Now, there's different ways of explaining this. Maybe it's, you know, the UFOs are coming down in waves. Maybe it's one one person reports it, other people are influenced by that. For example, um, the Travis Walton UFO sighting happened, I believe, two weeks after a broadcast of the movie The UFO Incident, which was a television adaptation of the Betty and Barney Hill story. So it's possible Walton could have been influenced by that. So the same thing could be true of Bigfoot. Um, there are Bigfoot hotspots. You know, there are spots where Bigfoot is seen a lot. But to my knowledge, there are no mass sightings of Bigfoot, like Western PA, that festival I went to. That's a hotspot. Um, Washington State is a hotspot. Parts of California in Humboldt County, where the Patterson-Gimlin footage film was shot. That's a hotspot. So there are places you can go where like, lots of people will claim you you have a better chance of seeing Bigfoot, but it's not like the UFO community where you'll have mass sightings. And I think one of the reasons for that you'll notice is with UFO sightings, when you see like the mass sightings, the Phoenix lights, things like that, it 
often comes around military or near military installations. So when you get sightings like that, it's hard to tell if it's military craft, if it's something else, what have you. Most people don't know like how military craft work, especially when you get closer to um, like secret locations like Area 51. Um, the military has trained, uh, not trained, but created technology where, you know, jets can lift off the ground and change directions. Um, I forget the name of that specific type of flight, but that's something that can be done. So when you see mass sightings of UFOs, my guess is what they're seeing are probably, you know, military planes in formation or something to that effect, where you're not going to see that with Bigfoot because there's no military use for Bigfoot outside of like Robert Bigelow at, you know, Skinwalker Ranch or I guess Brandon Fugel is the guy who owns it now. You know, there may be some monetary gain by studying Bigfoot in that community, in that area at Skinwalker Ranch, but there's no way for the military to, you know, weaponize Bigfoot. Yeah, it's interesting. Right before we started recording, Robert, I, I, I found probably one of the only government connections I could to Bigfoot. And um, I didn't realize this, that uh, the sector of the National Guard that basically, you know, f supposed to defend the air force, the airspaces of 75% of uh, the United States, um, the nickname of them is Bigfoot. And it's not just, uh, it's not just that they, that's their nickname. If you actually look at like their logos and stuff, um, one of their insignias uh, is of a Bigfoot. So um, and I, I don't know how long that goes back, but so that's probably the only, you know, U.S. government insignia or official patch or anything that has Bigfoot or Sasquatch referenced on it. Um, I'm sure a lot of people, listeners of this podcast have already seen like all the Trevor Paglin, you know, where he released that book which had all those crazy special op yeah. patches with like aliens and handcuffs and stuff. Um, but, uh, but I wanted to go back to something you said, because this does obviously these types of stories exist in other cultures. Um, the Yeti, uh, the, just the idea of wild men going back, you know, this far in our folklore. Um, not to say that these are, you know, real sightings people are having of real cryptid beings in some form. What would interest me more is there does seem to be a psychological component to it that, you know, and I don't know, I'm not normally a believer in the idea of like ancestral DNA or, or, you know, where your DNA can provide you like a history of your ancestors past. But it is interesting that because this exists in every culture and because uh, I'm assuming you're probably a believer in evolution. Um, yeah. I, it makes me wonder if there is something inside of us that has some, just in some weird buried subconscious form that exists in our brain of like what we were previous to being homo sapiens like our previous you know version of you know how we live not not, not saying how we live but just that primal or just even just the understanding and you know because this goes back so far in culture that's what makes intrigues me about that idea or where it comes from psychologically because people didn't accept the concept of evolution until very you know very modern era so w what is it do you think do you think there's any element of that or just any what do you think about the psychology of that that like if people are experience if this is like such a common reoccurring theme um 
you know, and it also sort of got me thinking though, there are a lot of people who claim to have seen Bigfoot that describe it almost more like a Neanderthal or like a caveman like beast that looks more like a human, but is not, but you know, is not an ape also like they will explicitly say this looked like some kind of caveman. Um, I'm just wondering what, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think there's, do you have any ideas on, on any, have you had any thoughts on that? If there's like a psychological reason for people going there. Yeah. I mean, there's that, um, argument mm. with the uncanny Valley, the idea that, um, you know, things that look like replicas of humans, but aren't quite there. They inspire like, you know, this, feeling of, you know, discontent, revulsion in us, because I've seen it argued that this would develop because at some point there would have to be something that wasn't human that looked like us, right? So Neanderthals and Homo sapiens existing alongside each other for a brief period of time. Um, I think there's probably something psychological where we definitely want something like that to exist. You know, the X-Files phrase, I want to believe. Um, the way people look at the world specifically through the lens of Bigfoot early on was, it was an attempt to justify the concept of evolution. Now we mentioned Carlton Kuhn, who was trying to use that as a justification for race science, but you know, there are other people who tried to use Bigfoot in a way that they thought would prove evolution. I believe the guy's name is Grover Krantz. Um, he was, yeah, it's Grover Krantz. He was an anthropologist who worked in universities for pretty much his entire life. And he was one of the only anthropologists to attach his name to the concept of Bigfoot because in part he thought Bigfoot was part of like evolutionary anthropology and could prove the existence of evolution through science. The woo woo aspect of Bigfoot culture. What are some of the more, I guess, amusing or just elaborate versions of that that you've come across um because you know the i'd say probably one of the ones that surprised me the most was that the lights you know this idea of the the booger lights oh um, yeah i'm not too familiar with that i know of it it's sort of it's sort of like tangential to the orbs so yeah yeah i think it's more or less the same thing and like uh it's you know i guess this idea that that these lights either proceed or or follow a Bigfoot encounter, maybe even implying that this is somehow their true form or that they are the lights or some to some degree that seems to kind of be the implication. Um, I mean, have you, what are some of the more interesting tales that you've come across in regards to that, the more supernatural uh, variations of Bigfoot? So there's this writer I follow. Um, I reviewed his book, uh, American Madness, which was about, um, Alex Jones and his influence on America and specifically Richard McCaslin, the guy who invaded Bohemian Grove in the early two thousands, like stormed in there with guns blazing. But, yes. um, he also writes about paranormal and other stuff like that. And I believe it was like a year or two back. He wrote about, um, I'm not even sure how to phrase it. It's, um, Zorth. Zorth is like this Bigfoot like creature who communicates with this guy. And he told, Zorth told this guy that Trump would win the 2020 election. So it was like this weird amalgam of like QAnon adjacent beliefs with Bigfoot. And it involved prophecy and some weird spiritual stuff. So it was really strange seeing it because I believe he even talked about something similar to like the 12 tribes and incorporated that into his belief. 
Um, so you see all kinds of really strange and unusual people who, you know, sprout up within the world of Bigfoot Woo. Um, so it's hard for me to say one thing specifically because it's always very individualized and you always find really unusual people who come up with really strange ideas. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of like, there was a really good, um, I mean, I, I, this is not even woo-woo, but I mean, one of the more interesting aspects, you know, that I hear from these hunter firsthand accounts is that like, they seem to have this belief that a bullets won't take a Sasquatch down, um, <laughs> that it's like, that like, they'll need to have like an elephant gun kind of, you know, ammunition or, or it just won't work at all. Like this thing is so big, um, and so strong looking to them that, that they just, you know, so that seems to be another baked in excuse or reason for why a lot of the time, I mean, why there's no Sasquatch corpses, um, is that they, you know, and then you also hear this idea that, and, and I'm sure you've heard this many times that there's, that people describe this feeling of getting, uh, like, a almost like had the hair standing on the back of their neck, getting overcome with fear, even sometimes before the sighting actually occurs. Um, I mean, just wondering, you know, what do you, what do you think is there too? I mean, Cause there's, I don't know. There just seems to be a weird psychological component to this that I'm, that I, I, I just would like to see explored more. And I guess, cause I'm just starting to explore this topic. I'm just kind of shooting in the dark and, um, I don't know if you have any more thoughts on that. Um, I mean, so like I was saying, the woo community is always very highly individualized. It's improvisational. So people come up with their own personal blends. Um, I forget the name of the couple who was speaking in Western Pennsylvania when I went, but um, the guy had initially been a part of BFRO, the Bigfoot Research Organization, or Bigfoot Field Research Organization. And one of the things that he talked about was that he was getting bored with, you know, going out into the woods and carrying around all this equipment because he didn't see a point in, he, he didn't think they were going to capture Bigfoot, like on film, video, audio, because of the way Bigfoot existed in his mind, which was as this spiritual creature. He's ultimately the guy that was communicating with Bigfoot via telepathy, using meditation. Um, he believed Bigfoot had connections to UFOs and was an interdimensional being. So like he was pulling in all the strangest elements of the woo community and just put it into this, you know, mixture of strange beliefs. And he came out with, I have it on audio. I recorded his lecture and I keep meaning to upload it, but I haven't found anything quite as over the top as that yet. I'm sure there are people out there who believe stuff just as wild. It's just, I haven't come across them yet. No. Oh, I would so love for you to, to upload that as a accompaniment to this. Cause that would be, <laughs> that'd be incredible to hear. Yeah. I can probably um, send you the audio if you want. I have it somewhere safe. Oh, I would love it. Yeah. yeah. I would, if you, if you don't mind, yeah. Putting, if I put, drop some clips of that on, on here, that would be, that would be amazing. And I know in the Bigfoot world, there are the physical people and then there are the woo people. Jenny and I would like to put ourselves in a category of we are responsibly woo. Because nothing that we ever find, <laughs> nothing Bigfoot related that we ever find, do we say 100% that is Bigfoot? Or that we have UFO activity, do we say that is UFO activity? 
I mean, I think what you're at, and maybe I'm not, I hope I'm hearing you right. You're saying, do we utilize any kind of things that we use with meditation to help us, yes. to aid us? Well, I mean, we've, we've used different techniques in the, in, in the woods when we're experimenting. We'll use Tibetan singing bowls. We've played John Denver music. Um, we have, we've meditated. My wife is a Reiki healer, so she does energy healing. So with energy, what you put out sometimes comes back to you. So really, we honestly think of everything as energy. We look at the forest, we, we communicate with the trees in a way that, you know, the trees are communicating with each other. So when you slow down and you slow down your body and you just sit in the woods and you meditate, things can happen and you can hear things that you would not hear. And I started asking questions like I'm talking to a human. So I'm in the forest and I'm in my mind, I'm communicating with Bigfoot. Whether I did communicate with Bigfoot is another question. But when I ask a question, I asked, can you tell me the name of this forest? I'm expect, like I didn't hear it with my ear, but when I played it back on the recorder, I heard my voice as my voice. On the recorder, I heard it say, Allegheny, like it said Allegheny. Yes. I do have my phone with that recording. But if anyone wants to hear it, I have it on my phone, but it is, it, it does say Allegheny. So whatever I was communicating with, which let's call it the all, the super spectrum. So it's, it's this John Keel link beyond our human capabilities. It came across on this recorder and it said the word Allegheny. It was a Bigfoot, I don't know. Was it some Native American <coughs> ghost? I don't know. But I'm Wu, my wife is Wu, and we're always going to be Wu, and we're going to research like that. So. My only uh, regret with that is I missed the Bigfoot calling contest. Uh, they have those at most of the outdoor festivals, and I made it a little late the second day of the festival, and I missed it. So I couldn't get that on uh, my recorder. Wow, that's that's incredible. I've seen videos of like hog calling contests and stuff at like state fairs. So th this was basically that, but Sasquatch calling? Yeah, I think there's versions of it online. I've definitely seen videos before, wow. and it's like a hog calling contest. It's just, you know, they're making much deeper, more guttural noises, what they think a bear probably would sound like. Brilliant. Well, before we wrap this up, I wanted to throw this out there because it's something we didn't touch on, um, is this concept of uh, evidence, um, you know, proof. Uh, when it comes to Bigfoot stuff, other than the Patty footage, um, which is still to this day by far the best quote unquote evidence out there of video evidence, it's mostly footprint casts, uh, hair. Um, but I would say probably the most compelling quote unquote evidence for me uh, that I've encountered out there is the audio recordings. Um, some of those do do seem very interesting and you know kind of just compelling on their own. Um, and that's, you know, I think maybe it's partly because I have an audio background, but I've also have just noticed that the majority of the stuff out there that's taped, you know, is not, is not photographic or video. There's actually very few, I don't even think there's been any like modern attempts to hoax Bigfoot that have, you know, that people have even attempted, like there's just not very much out there. Um, but th there's a lot of audio out there of people claiming they're hearing, Bigfoots or, you know, mysterious cryptids in the woods. Um, and of course, there's the infamous uh, Sierra sounds. Um, <laughs> now, I, I just maybe maybe start with the Sierra sounds. When I hear those, I think 
wow, there's like a really good, you know, like Disney level voice actor who's like out there just like, you know, doing some like Robin Williams improv, like, or something like that. Like it seems, but like a lot of people lean on that and say like, this is, it would be impossible to fake. You know, it's, it's proof that there is some kind of animal, unknown animal on this recording. And, um, I don't know, but start by commenting on the Sierra sounds, but also like, have you heard any other uh, compelling sounds, um, when it comes to like Sasquatch evidence? Well, so I, I think that ties into the Patterson Gimlin film because that was roughly the same period. It was the early seventies. It was two guys, I believe, uh, Al Barry and Ron Moorhead who were recording in California and, um, they came out with these noises and I think it, stuck in the public consciousness in the same way the Patterson Gimlin film did because it came in an era where something like that was so exceedingly rare that you would almost have to believe it, right? You know, who would fake this? And as time has gone on, you know, people do come out with audio, but it's like ghost hunting in the sense that, you know, when a door slams, it's seen as validation that, you know, oh, there's a ghost, right? Mm-hmm. So when you hear any kind of unusual noise that you can't immediately track, it's Bigfoot, you know? It's almost like Havana syndrome in a way, right? Where <laughs> yeah. um, the crickets, allegedly it was like uh, short-tailed Indies crickets that researchers determined the actual Havana syndrome noise that was released, that's what it was. But because it's like something so foreign to most average people, they wouldn't have a frame of reference for it. So something like the Sierra sounds or noises that come later most people don't know like what a bear sounds like. They don't know the noises of apes. So any kind of noise that they hear in the woods, especially one that's then later played on TV, will seem real, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I've, i you know, just from my perspective, I find some of them interesting um, for sure. But the Sierra sound specifically, I mean, it don't, I mean, it definitely is some kind of hoax. I'm, I'm like, you know, even more so than the Patterson Gimlin footage, I'm like, this is, you know, this is definitely a hoax. Um, but I, I, I guess I don't understand why, why do you think that one in particular, was it just because like you said, it was just released, you know, before people were clever enough to be able to effectively put things like this together. I mean, it's just right place, right time. Um, you know, yeah, something like that I was mean, released now. That, I don't I think, think people is, would. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, if, I mean, if something like that was released now, you'd, what would you think that would, that would uh, captivate anyone's attention? Well, so again, it was like in that period where so evidence was so few and far between that stuff like that immediately rose to the top and it has been replayed or stuck in the cultural consciousness for so long, it just becomes accepted by a large portion of the population as fact. Um, a lot of what we see now, like when you go on those shows like Finding Bigfoot or you watch them, it, it's similar stuff it's not that far removed from something like the sierra sounds but it's in an era where there's so much of it that it it's hard for it to stick it's like most modern movies today right we produce more movies today than probably we did 50 or 60 years ago but because so many of them are being produced and they're being produced at such a poor quality and being put out there on services where no one will ever see them Nothing registers, you know, how many Bigfoot shows are out there? How many Bigfoot podcasts are out there? How many Bigfoot researchers are out there? There's so much of this information that none of it sticks. None of it's unique. None of it's put in a position where most people will be able to see it. Um, whereas, you know, Patterson Gimlin, Sierra Sounds, a lot of those early cryptozoological finds, 
you know, they were repeated over and over and over again over the course of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So, you know, there's the initial wave of belief, and then the people who come out to debunk it or say it isn't real. And then there's people who come after that, you know, contrarians who are like, no, it is real, and here's why. And after a certain point in time, it just becomes accepted by a certain portion of the population as fact, or as close to fact as you can get. And it's funny you say that it's hard for anything to stand out because it seems like the only person who managed to, at least over the past like five years or so in the Sasquatch community, was that guy, Todd Standing, who, as you know, has been widely accused of hoaxing, majorly hoaxing his material. And he really did go for it, though, with, uh, um, yeah, describe what the what the debunkers, you know, some of them are among people in the Sasquatch community went after it, too. But describe what what he attempted to do and and um and then what people thought about it <laughs> i'm actually not too familiar with okay. the story i only know it briefly because i've seen other people like lauren coleman mention it as being like a discredit to the the bigfoot and cryptozoological community so i mean even within those communities there's you know this idea of territoriality people who want to be the first to do something so a lot of times the people who are most skeptical of new finds are people within the community this is common within the ufo world as well yeah um after the um gulf breeze sightings in florida um from ed walters with those photos a lot of the people to attack it were people in the ufo community um the benowitz story came out because of researchers like barry greenwood who attacked bill moore and um jamie chanteray so within these communities people especially the ones who want to prove this is real in like a scientific way they'll be the harshest critics because they want the evidence to be good. So from what I understand with those recent hoaxes, it was people within the Bigfoot community who called into question the credibility. And it eventually turned out the guy was hoaxing, you know? Yeah. And something else interesting um, that we haven't really touched on it. You touched on it briefly about one of the um, key key factors of the patty video and it's one that i was not even aware of until maybe like a couple of months ago um and my mind is honestly a little blown after realizing how much uh bigfoot is sexualized or at least gendered um by a lot of the people who have sightings or alleged sightings and in the patty video specifically you mentioned that there's uh, swinging breasts in that <laughs> there are visible in the video and people who are like, Oh, you can't fake that. Or, you know, that's not possible. I mean, watch any episode of like RuPaul's dra- drag race or, you know, it's very, e- I mean, someone with enough ingenuity could easily fake something like that. Um, maybe it was even a, a woman in a really good suit. Um, but I guess what's fascinating to me and there maybe, you know, there's some crossover here, maybe too in UFO culture, with probing and some of the more sexualized encounters, even Travis Walton's uh, actual full story gets interestingly sexual. Um, you know, if, for people who don't know that story, but with Bigfoot, there's you know a lot of the times it's right out of the gates. It's like it was a male Bigfoot, you know, or it was a female Bigfoot, and then with more you know digging, you know, either by like a podcast host or someone else, you'll eventually get to well, it had very prominent breasts it had huge hips you know i was even listening to an episode of the sasquatch chronicles um the other day where it's one of the more like credible sounding 
you know, even keeled guys telling a really long story. Um, one of the more believable sounding ones. And at a certain point he's like, you know, I, I hate to admit it, but it, it was a really beautiful specimen. Like, and he was describing her thighs, the muscles rippling through them, uh, almost describing her like she was like a, uh, like a bodybuilder Amazonian woman, you know, that he w- seemed like he had the hots for. I noticed you kept calling it a she. Would you describe what the creature looked like and why do you think it was a she? Um, she had the obvious female attributes of the chest, of the mammary glands, uh, about a C cup, dark red orange hair, flat stomach, muscle, muscled legs. As as a as a physical specimen, she was a beautiful being. Okay, uh, hair all over. You know, she wasn't just some shaggy looking thing. She was she was quite. A beautiful being. It's taken me a long time to appreciate that. You know, I've even heard people. I, I was listening to another episode of the Scottish Chronicles where they they both went into you know how big was its penis, and the guy basically started mocking Bigfoot for not having a very big penis compared to how big the rest of his body was. And then they went on talking about how gorillas don't have big, very big penises, so that sort of lines up with the science angle of it. So there's all sorts of weird stuff. I, I mean. Let's, I'll just throw this out there because it's probably the weirdest one. A woman who lived in a swamp introducing him to a Bigfoot family. And the Bigfoot daughter that was eight years old, this guy couldn't, could not take his eyes off of her breasts. And he, he just kept telling this story about how the daughter, the Bigfoot eight-year-old child, um, kept like snarling at him every time he was trying to catch a look at her. And then he even went into how he felt weird finding an eight-year-old so attractive. I mean, this is going to sound horrible, uh, I know, but, it, and the thing about it is, um, I don't want to say the lady's name, but she ends up telling me that this particular animal, Bigfoot, is was eight years old, but she was, you know, six foot six, six foot seven, and like I was telling you, um, she was very, very mature. And <laughs> while I'm sitting there, you know, I'm I'm looking, you know, I'm staring just like crazy. And, you know, I probably might have stared at her breast way too much. And I know everybody can think, ooh, that's sick. But it is what it is. <laughs> and yeah. she she gave me a she gave me a very like mean look and a dirty growl. Typical woman. T- typical woman. And, you know, they say <laughs> that they can read minds and. You know, I wasn't thinking nothing like that. I hope I wasn't. Yeah. If I did, God forgive me. But I mean, she was, she was, she was very attractive. And there's this, there's a picture on the internet, and it's, it's old, rare photos of like Native Americans. And if you look through there, there's there's a, a picture of a woman that looks very, very similar to her. You know, she's thin. You can't see her her lower area because it's very hairy, but you know, I mean, she had, she has, she was very tall and muscular, but she had a shape and you know, she had a hairy little butt, <laughs> I guess I could say. And you know, she was, I mean, it was, it was fascinating. You know, she, it was, it was a, it was a beautiful specimen is the way I put it. No, I get it. I get it. You and know, so, you can go to the zoo and see a beautiful lion and be like, man, that, that thing is really beautiful. Yeah, of course. And I'm just sitting there thinking like, what in the hell 
what kind of Freudian nightmare is inside this man's head? It, it is, it's strange to listen to how that, you know, how sexual it can get. And, you know, what are your thoughts on that? What are, or are some other wacky uh, sexualizations of Bigfoot? Turn, let's turn to you, Robert, and, and have you speak on this issue. Yeah. I mean, I think the famous recent one was the uh, Republican guy from um, Virginia, um, oh my Denver God, Riggleman, I forgot all who was writing that. the Bigfoot erotica, and that became a big story. <laughs> this race has been rocked by scandal, and I promise you haven't heard of this one before, because Bigfoot porn is shaking up the Virginia congressional race. Yes, Bigfoot porn. This is the most scandalous campaign story since LBJ was caught in bed with the chupacabra. So... Um. So at least for him, that was an outgrowth of a trend on Amazon where, you know, um, romance novels, if they include, you can't include bestiality, but if you do like woman centaur or woman Bigfoot, like it's super popular because of just some weird innate thing in the human brain that wants to do that for some reason. But um, within the Bigfoot community, I don't know if you would call it that, but even going back to the 70s, um, there was a sexualization of Bigfoot almost immediately in part because I think it happened in tandem with um, the mainstreaming of pornography, you know, the porno chic era. There were a couple of Bigfoot um, adult films made in the seventies, the geek, um, the beast and the beauties. So a bunch of those came out in that period. And I, I'm not going to say they were <laughs> popular. I only know about them through like researching the subject, but it's something that persists in the nineties. You had the weekly world news covers. It was, um, Bigfoot kept lumberjack as love slave. Mm -hmm. I married Bigfoot. You know, I think part of it is the idea uh, that it's funny that people would want to fuck Bigfoot, but people will <laughs> fuck anything, as you illustrated with that unfortunate, <laughs> you know, image of the man looking at the young Bigfoot. <laughs> so, I mean, have you heard people? I mean, and and I guess maybe this is me taking too far of a leap, but it's like you know, people. There's the, often the old adage of like, if you have a big foot, you know, or if you have big feet. That means you like you're 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 pretty hung, or you know you've you've heard that over the years. So it's like I'm wondering too: is there like is there kind of like a wink and a nod, or it's like it, I mean, if this if this creature has like you know twenty inch long feet, I mean, like like I would imagine that they're like hung like a horse. I mean, it seems like that seems to be missing. You know, they're often able to identify Bigfoot's breasts when they're like, oh, this is definitely a female, even describing how it's even attracted to them, but you really don't hear very many people describing how they know it's a male other than like the physique of it, which I hear a lot of comparisons to like wrestlers, you know, it looks like a pro, like the biggest pro wrestler you've ever seen, like Andre the giant covered in hair or something. Um, but yeah, you don't hear very many descriptions of the actual genitalia of Bigfoot. And is, is it just cause it has so much hair? Have, have you heard anything, anybody tell any stories about it other than the one I heard where the guy's making fun of it for not, you know, pack being packed. Um, I don't know. What do you, have you heard anything? <laughs> well, so I mean, when you get into those Bigfoot communities, a lot of the people who end up, you know, especially on the woo end tend to be a little odd. Um, one of my favorite accounts for this, and he, um, he was a meme a few years ago online. I think his name is Peter Kane. Um, if you look up on YouTube, Peter Kane, Bigfoot jizz, he'll, <laughs> go into lots of descriptions about Bigfoot finding Bigfoot jizz and lots of like sexual descriptions of Bigfoot. <clears throat> and it's funny because the account I think is something like Peter Kane dog training. I think it was like an account <laughs> he created on YouTube, 
for the purpose of promoting his dog business. I don't know if he's legit or not. I've only watched a few of his videos, but um, I found this through my friend who believed he had seen Bigfoot, and the guy seems sincere. So you'll find a lot about Bigfoot masturbation, Bigfoot jizz, all kinds, shit, all kinds of shit. Oh my I, I don't God. know you about the guy personally. This. I would definitely look him up, and I'd recommend looking up his videos because he's odd. As soon as I snacked down on the ground, she starts ripping my clothes off me. She did. She pulled my pants off me, and I'm like, oh, great. What? What? She's going to kill me. They're going to find my naked body here. It's worse. It's worse. As soon as she got my pants off me, she started, like, jerking the ween. And I'm like, whoa, you know, that's not going to work. You know, what are you doing? And then the next thing I know, keep in mind, this is a big Sasquatch, like a comparable to, like, a big, hairy Russian, Russian woman. I mean, she was big. She was like... You know, seven and a half, eight feet tall and hairy. And so I'm down there on the ground. I'm completely naked. My clothes have been ripped off me. And she starts giving me a knobber. It was, it was all just biological. I didn't have any choice. And the next thing you know, you know, I blew my load. I blew my load in the Sasquatch. As soon as I did that, she got up and she ripped down... She like let out this hell and then ripped down this tree. And I thought, my God, she's gonna like take the tree and take me and s take it and smash me, right? No, it didn't end. It didn't end. And then she starts blowing me again. She starts blowing me again. And I'm like, you know, could you give me five minutes? She didn't even give me five minutes. She started blowing me again. The next thing you know, I bust a nut again again and then she stands up and does one of these like mmm like mmm isn't that good I, I swear to god I swear to god then she hightails it into the woods this way could be performance art but he's been doing this for years he still uploads videos occasionally <laughs> about Bigfoot in between videos of him training dogs oh so yeah, uh, he's one of the more unusual characters I've come across. Um, I've never interacted with him personally. I've only ever seen his videos. Well, he's definitely cornered a niche market because I've not heard anybody <laughs> talk about Bigfoot jizz before. Like that is that's maybe that'll catch on, you know, and people. Will start. You know, this like I said, it was big a few years ago. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> I, I think his moment came and passed. Yeah. Well, I had a great time talking about Sasquatch with you, Robert, and. Um, I would love to get uh, yeah some clips in the podcast of that lecture that you heard because um, that sounds yeah. incredible. Um, is there anything you want to leave our listeners with as far as um, you know the current state of this <laughs> this uh, phenomenon? <laughs> There's a lot of people who think we're on the precipice of it being like the UFO thing. I think this actually invigorated a lot of the people in the research community. But like, I anticipate like there there's going to be a major discovery. You know, like the gut or even the government's going to be like, we admit it. We were covering up Bigfoot the whole time. Um, where do you think this is going to go? Do you think it's going to have a, you know, even though there's all these reality shows, I feel like it's not, it's, it doesn't quite hit at the same level as this UFO stuff. It's not on 60 minutes, you know? So, I mean, where do you think it's going to go from here? Where do you see it going? Yeah. Um, so I think we are in a period of, High strangeness, if you want to phrase it like that, mm -hmm. um, where anything is possible, because if you turn on the news, you see UFOs, you hear about Havana syndrome, um, 
COVID could be a weaponized, you know, it could have been a biochemical weapon made by China. Um, I'm trying to think of all of the other strange stuff that's come out over the last few years. But, oh, yeah, um, uh, apparently the Saudis did 9-11. So all <laughs> yeah, this yeah. stuff is out there. All of these things that were once verboten are now subjects that we can talk about. So naturally, I think out of that milieu, you see stuff like this arising as well. We're in a period commensurate to the 70s where all of these conspiracies real world were happening. So all of these other things that have been hidden allegedly from us could possibly be real. And I think that might partially explain what's happening right now. Um, the government is obviously using some of this to their advantage, the UFO story and Havana syndrome in particular. Um, but on the fringes of that, you're going to see stories about cryptids. You're going to see stories about ghosts. You're going to see all kinds of unusual paranormal and spiritual beliefs arise out of this because it's just part of that milieu that comes up in times like this. So I don't know if we're on the cusp of any Bigfoot disclosure. I don't know if there's technically a Bigfoot disclosure community <laughs> in the same way there is in the UFO world, mm -hmm. but um, I think Bigfoot will be popular again for a couple of years into the next decade, probably. And then it might die down and rise up again, depending on what's happening. Who knows? Yeah, let's hope it gets a little little more. I mean, I, I think I... Maybe Bigfoot did 9-11. Yeah, yeah. Some, I mean, I wanted to get just more into the, to the pop culture realm, I think. And I know Bobcat Goldthway tried to make like a found footage horror movie about Bigfoot, yeah. but like it was it was pretty good. Um but I want to. I think I just want to see it get more into like the pop culture realm, and uh, it would just be fun. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, like, there isn't really a good Bigfoot movie. That's one of my problems. No, there um, isn't. Harry and Hendersons the... is like a fine family movie, but if you want like Bigfoot Apex Predator, you know there isn't a whole lot there. Um, the one I would recommend, and it's not a good movie by any means, is a movie from 1980 called Night of the Demon. Um, not Night of the Demons, the later. Um, horror demon movie but mm -hmm. night of the demon about a college professor who takes his kids out into the woods to search for bigfoot and it follows loosely a structure of like an hp hp lovecraft story for some reason i don't know why but oh, you get to see all kinds of like weird shit um in that movie you know bigfoot rips a dude's dick off okay wow and this was this uh english or this is american american very okay. american I believe it was made by um, some adult filmmakers um, who were working in that period and were like, well, we need something that'll actually sell um, to a normal audience. So they made uh, Night of the Demon. And in many ways, it resembles an adult film where the violence is a substitute for the sex. Nice. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of unfortunate, but I'll, I'll definitely check this out because I'm looking at it right now. It looks pretty, looks pretty amazing. Um, cool. Well, it was great talking to you, Robert. And uh yeah, I I love um, the stuff you post and the stuff you're into. Um, it parallels a lot of my interests. And yeah, let's uh, let's let's find an excuse to do this again at some point in the future. Can't understand parapolitics if you don't know the paranormal. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> Hi there. I love Media Roots Radio. <laughs> Even though this is not Samuel L. Jackson, and this is actually Robbie Martin talking, wanted to tell you how great Media Roots Radio is and how it would be really nice of you to subscribe to Media Roots Radio for only $5 a month, which gives you exclusive access to 
one bonus episode per month at least. In fact, we've been doing more than one bonus episode recently. That, if you subscribe now, you immediately get access to over 100 hours of exclusive content that is unavailable to non-subscribers. So, have a happy new year everyone, and keep listening to Media Roots Radio, and consider subscribing at patreon.com slash Radio. Take care everybody, <coughs> happy new year.